Good evening, Freedom Fighters. Welcome to two old teeds. Well, it's actually three old teeds tonight. Uh, well, we've got the old teed that we've been trying to get for the past eight or nine months. Uh, Alex Salmon has joined us. Welcome to the show, Alex. No, it's great to be here. But uh, um, uh, look, if you if you say three old heads again, I'm walking out, and it'll be the first <laughs> interview I've walked out of this and uh, this campaign. So just watch yourself. I'm uh, I'm just a boy in comparison to you, pair. There's an actual oh. truth. There's an actual truth to that, Alec, and I won't go. I won't take it any further. <laughs> I'll speak as the as the oldest one on the program. It's very good to there have you. Go. you. Thank you <laughs> Thanks, for mate. participating. Just before we started recording, I made the comment that I was going to try and ask my questions by giving you a context first. And my overall context and all the shows that Dave and I have done, I've repeated a number of phrases. For me, the singular most important that we've got to dwell on and discuss further is that the people are sovereign. Not as a phrase we quote, but as a thing we actually act upon. So. Where I want to start, Alec, is to do with voting, voting turnout. Watching the launch, you mentioned that it felt a bit like 2014, and I agree with you on that. In 2014, 84% of those entitled to vote voted. Two years later, 2016, it had dropped to 55%. Now, there's maybe a lesson in that that we could go on to, but Here's my question, and it leads on to a second question. But the first question is, Belgium and Australia both make it compulsory to vote. I wonder what your thoughts on that are. Hey, Mike, I'm sympathetic, actually, to compulsory voting, but I don't think it's the most important thing. Uh, the most important thing is to give people something worth voting for. Uh, and let me give you an illustration of 2014. Uh, I, in the high summer of 2014, when the Yes campaign began to take off, I knew that things were moving long before it was shown in the opinion polls, uh, because I, I was spending a, a day in the, the celestial city of Dundee. And that day, it was a Monday, uh, and that day I came across, I was, I was actually no far from the, the statue of Desperate Dan. You know, Dun, Dundee's an amazing city, uh, and Dundee famously has no statues of Winston Churchill, uh, because uh, Winston Churchill left representing the city of Dundee in 1922 in rather unfortunate circumstances. Uh, he, he didn't even come second in a contest when he was defending his seat, and he was beaten by a guy called Scrimger, who was a temperance party candidate. And Churchill in the huff uh, said that he would never set foot in the city of Dundee again. He never did. Uh, and in response, the, the good citizens of that city said they would never build a statue to Winston Churchill, and they never did. But they built one to Desperate Dan instead. And if you look at the statue of Desperate Dan in, back in that high summer, there was this big queue of folk. So I went up to the queue because I was canvassing in the days when you could canvass people and <laughs> you weren't in lockdown. And I said to the guy in the queue, I said, you know, are the, are, the, are the pubs opening early or are the pubs shutting late or what's happening? Why is this queue formed? I mean, I hoped it was to see me, but it wasn't. It? And he says, oh, we're queuing to get a vote because he said, we've got to register by today. Actually, he was wrong. The registration was the next day. Uh, but nonetheless, this impressive queue of people <clears throat> were in the, the city of Dundee queuing up to register to vote. And I said to him, well, that's really interesting. I'm, you know, I said, have you just moved into Dundee? They said, no, I'll be here all my life. I said, well, 
you know, why you haven't registered to vote? I mean, you know, I've been an absent voter. You've been in the forces. He says, no, he says, I haven't been registered to vote since the poll tax. I said, since the poll tax? He said, aye. He said, but this, me and all these other people here, this is the first time, the first time we've had something worth voting for. And it was at that moment in the city of Dundee, beside the statue of Desperate Dan, looking at that queue of folk queuing patiently in the sun uh, to exercise their democratic franchise, that I knew the Yes campaign was taking off. And it was taking off because at last people had something worth voting for. So the answer to your question might be compulsory voting a la Australia, but I think much more is to give people something worth voting for which for many people, for the first time in their lives, they had something worth voting for in the high summer of 2014. And if Alapa can catch that mood, we'll take some stopping in this election campaign. Where I wanted to lead that to, Alec, um, is the question of post-independence having a second chamber. And to introduce you to that concept, I want to quote from something that Lady Carmichael said in the Martin Keating Section 30 case. In her, in, in her declaration, she said, look, you, you are a voter. You don't have standing. And the minute you vote, you're going to pass the power and the sovereignty you had up until that point to Annie Wells, to Murdo Fraser, to James Kelly. My reason for asking the question, Alec, I think it's very, very important that there are checks and balances in Scottish democracy, and a second chamber would allow us to have that. Your thoughts, please. Oh, two answers. One, you know, this argument I've heard from some people in the SNP who sort of say we don't want a supermajority in the Scots Parliament because it would be unfair to the unionists. I mean, what they're actually saying is that they would rather have... Uh, uh, Murdo Fraser in the parliament than me, and they would rather have uh, Annie Wells than Councillor Michelle Ferns in Glasgow, uh, the woman who negotiated the pay settlement to give uh, the women who'd been cheated out their wages uh, over many, many years and negotiated the settlement to distribute £500 million to people who badly needed it. Not £500 million each, but the distribution across the equal pay settlement that was... Uh, that had been neglected by so many councils over so many years. So they're actually saying they'd rather have Annie Wells and Murdo Fraser, the desperate duel of Scottish politics, than people who believe in independence. And they, they should think shame of themselves. In terms of the concept of sovereignty of the people, I uh, politely disagree with her ladyship. Uh, sovereignty isn't something you give away. Sovereignty is essential. And the constitutional doctrine of Scotland is based on the sovereignty of the people. Now, for my pains, before I became an economist, I was a, well, I was never a medieval historian, but I had a, a, an honours degree, a joint honours in medieval history. Uh, so I was something of a historian, even if I never practised it properly. Uh, but I know a, a fair amount about uh, Scottish medieval history, and Geoffrey Barrow, a great man, was my tutor, uh, and he taught me a great deal. Maybe not as much as he wanted to, but certainly enough. So I am acutely aware of where sovereignty comes from and what the Scottish constitutional tradition is. I know the 
extent, and I know the limitations of the Declaration of Arbroath in terms of expressing that concept. But if we look at the terms of the Declaration of Arbroath, which I was celebrating in the launch of the, the Alapa Party's campaign, uh, the uh, Declaration of Arbroath doesn't say, uh, well, incidentally, we've put in good King Robert as our king, and therefore we're stuck with him. The modern analogy would be we've put in Annie Wells and Murdo Fraser and we're stuck with them. But the Declaration of Arbroath says... We've put in good King Robert as a defender of our rights, and if he were to betray us and he was to sell us out uh, to the Plantagenets, if he was to sell Scotland out, then we'll get somebody else who will defend our rights as a nation. The essence of popular sovereignty, of elective kingship, of a king who was uh, there not by entitlement over the land, but was there by permission and consent of the community of the realm. That is the essence. The first declaration, incidentally, in medieval Europe, which encompassed that, uh, and something of phenomenal importance every child in Scotland should know and understand because it's the essence of our being. King Robert was not king of Scotland. He was king of Scots. Queen Elizabeth II is not queen of Scotland. She's queen of Scots, whether the royal family is fully aware of that concept or not. But that is the reality of the Scottish constitutional tradition. And whatever her ladyship says, in whatever case, that doesn't alter the essence of sovereignty. Sovereignty isn't given away. It's retained by the people. And the people of Scotland can exercise that fundamental, basic human Scottish right of exercising that sovereignty at any time they so choose. And I hope a good deal of them are going to send in Alapa MSPs who are going to oppose that concept in the Scots Parliament. My reason for raising the second chamber, let's say filled with representatives of the people chosen by the people, like the checks and balances. There's two classic examples at the moment. Number one is the legislation over hate crimes. And the second one is over Gender Recognition Act where it seems to me to be quite clear that popular opinion, and not unthoughtful popular opinion, it's not a knee-jerk, would want to challenge whether or not a Scottish government should be going down those paths without the involvement of the people. Could you respond? I think the two arguments are separate, to tell you the truth. Uh, the, uh, I, I, Mike, I, I don't think that... Uh, you know, I, I think... Uh, mistakes, and I think there are essential mistakes in both the hate crime legislation and, for that matter, in self-identification. And the Alapa Party were making a view clear since we passed policy in this and uh, women's inequalities policy, which is uh, was passed last Saturday at a policy conference, our first ever conference of the Alapa Party, and will be enunciated on Friday, uh, and then uh, debated at a women's conference on Saturday, this coming Saturday. Uh, so Alapa will be making its views clear. But I don't think the job of a second chamber is to save the first chamber from itself. Uh, I know that many people say that about revising chambers, and, and, and of course, it can be a role. Uh, I actually think the job of a second chamber, which I'm sympathetic to in Scotland, incidentally, is to add expertise and ability into the political firmament on a less 
defined party political basis that wouldn't be possible uh, when people are jousting and, and uh, taking part in election campaigns. Now, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> uh, I was invited to lead Alapa by Laurie Flynn, the founder of the, the party and his group of people who gathered around him, and I accepted the invitation. That was a few days before the close of nominations. Uh, and I, uh, with the names that they brought forward to me uh, and to the, the, the uh, election group, it was seeing who would be available to stand for Alapa. And we had to, a few days in which to do it. Uh, and I phoned a number of people in Scottish life, in the arts and economics and uh, various other professions, people at the top of their professions. Uh, and I said to them, look, you know, obviously it's a new party. You know, we might get nobody elected. We, we might take off, who knows? But would you like to come into this campaign? And some people who I know would have adorned the Scottish Parliament said, look, I'll vote for you. Uh, I'll give you some finance if we can. Uh, but I'm not going to stand for election. And I said, well, why not? I mean, you know, you know the concept. I know you're bright enough. I know uh, you're worth 10 of any of the MSPs who are in there at the present moment. Uh, and they said, uh, no, because of the, because of the, the political atmosphere, because if I put my head into that political parapet, somebody's going to try and knock it off. And I'm not really equipped for that sort of hurly-burly. Now, there's two ways to look at that. You can either say we should clean up our politics so that people are not subjected to that, and particularly women. So you know, the fact that we've got 18 wonderful women candidates and some of the great feminist voices of Scotland on our list is to Alapa Party's credit and to their credit for putting their heads above the parapet. Uh, but also we should reflect on the fact that uh, maybe cleaning up our politics is not going to be as easy as all that. Uh, I'm talking, when I say cleaning up, I mean from abuse and the internet and the social media and elsewhere. Uh, you know, the sort of stuff that Joanna Cherry has suffered from in the last two years. Uh, you know, a, a, a extraordinary intellect moving into the Scottish political arena from her outstanding career in law, and she gets subjected to dog's abuse by people who are, in terms of their intellect and contribution to Scotland, are not even a speck of sand in comparison with the, the, the huge contribution that Jana has already made to Scottish life. Now, the other way to look at it is perhaps a revising chamber, a second chamber, a, a Scottish Senate, let's call it that. We're certainly not calling it a House of Lords, or a House of Lairds, for that matter. A Scottish Senate, I think its prime duty would be to draw into the political arena people who, understandably, with expertise and, and a contribution to make, but don't like the, the hurly-burly of party politics. So I actually think that would be more important than what the argument you're saying, the revising chamber role of saving the parliament from its own stupidity. You know, I would hope that, uh, I suppose, a Senate could help with that. I would hope we could strengthen the committee system of the Parliament, give it real powers, like Westminster committees have, give the Parliament powers uh, so that it's uh, free and immune from uh, contempt of court as well as from defamation, uh, which it is already. But the contempt of court aspect, the limitations of the Parliament were shown up in recent months. Uh, so we could strengthen the committee system of the parliament and make sure that uh, executives, governments are not allowed to ride roughshod and embark on daft ideas. 
But I think a second chamber, the, the real case for a second chamber is to draw into to politics and to legislation people with real expertise, people who've got real life experience beyond being a researcher for somebody or other uh, for a few years and then think they've got an entitlement to stand for parliament. Uh, and I think a, a second chamber is a good idea and would be valid. Now, that's my personal idea. Alapa has not discussed the issue of a second chamber, although we will, incidentally, as part of our constitutional proposals and a, a written constitution for an independent Scotland, which we'll be releasing in approximately two weeks' time. Uh, but uh, my own view, for what it's worth, is that a second chamber is a good idea and is justified in terms of the expertise that allows you to draw into politics. I actually agree with you that, Alec, if I gave you a different impression... That would, that would be wrong. Dave, we're leaving you I out. I have to agree with me, Mike. <laughs> you disagree away. I don't agree with myself half the time. See, see when you mentioned committees, Alec, uh, uh, the, the recent committee uh, was split very much down like, like party lines. Uh, uh, and the, the way that the, the committees were actually made up, they were obviously appointees. Do you think there should maybe be another way of selecting uh, committees rather than basing it the, the way that the parties are represented? You know what? I, I think it's much more about the people. I mean, there are some great parliamentarians in the Scots Parliament. You know, one thinks of Alec Neil. Yeah. You know, that's a, a, you know, he's a real parliamentarian. I mean, I happen to agree with him in many things, not in everything, incidentally. Uh, but, uh, and, you know, Alec and I have disagreed on lots of things over our political careers, but Alec's a parliamentarian, a real parliamentarian, you know, a genuine parliamentarian. Uh, in other words, uh, if things come to the crunch and it's a vote of conscience or should be a vote of conscience or it's something Alec has decided upon and believes in uh, totally, he would have no compunction uh, but to stand up for his principles as a parliamentarian uh, and tell the... Uh, you know, the SNP whips to, to take a run and jump. Uh, and you have to have parliamentarians. You have to have party discipline, of course, particularly when you're the governing party. And, you know, I, I did. But I like to think the, you know, when I was first minister, the, the discipline was self-imposed, uh, particularly when we had the minority government, incidentally, and people grouped together out of solidarity. So there's an Eddie Morgan poem, isn't there? which was read out at the opening of the new parliament building back in whenever that was, 2004, 2005. And it's just a great poem, you know, and it says that a parliament of fierties we do not want. A parliament of fierties we do not want. Unfortunately, with one or two honourable exceptions and some good gifted parliamentarians who are in the Scots parliament, uh, we've ended up in many cases with a parliament of numpties. Uh, and we don't want a parliament of numpties. A parliament of numpties we do not want. We want people, whatever their political persuasion is, who are prepared to stand up as parliamentarians, who recognise they've got a duty to their party, they've got an overriding duty to their country, and they've got a duty to their conscience, and operate in that light. Uh, there was a, I'm not going to single out an individual, but the committee you referred to, Let's take it away from the issues. I just talk about attitudes. That committee, one of the members, one of the SNP members actually, actually said to me when I was giving evidence to that committee, well, why should we as parliamentarians have any special rights over the people? You know, why shouldn't we be subject to the same laws of contempt as 
an ordinary person would be in the street. In that question, it betrays the lack of understanding of the responsibility of a parliamentarian. The people, the sovereign people, elect parliamentarians precisely because they have the ability to do things that a non-parliamentarian, a non-elected person can't do. That is one of the roles of being a parliamentarian. It's the role of being able to say things without fear and favour, to produce things without fear and favour. If you get an intimidatory letter from the people in the Crown Office, then you can tell them where to go because you're a parliamentarian and you're operating under parliamentary privilege. Without parliamentary privilege of that kind, many of the great issues, the great scandals of the, the 19th and 20th century would never have been exposed. Why? Because it took a parliamentarian using parliamentary privilege to bring them to the light of day. The idea that anybody, far less an SNP member, in the Scots Parliament would actually enunciate a view that we don't want the responsibility of having parliamentary privilege unless we make a mistake or because we want to be just like everybody else. If the people wanted you to be just like everybody else, they wouldn't have elected you. People elect their parliamentarians to take responsibility to speak the truth. Of course, to be loyal to their party. Of course, to be loyal to their principles. Of course, to be loyal to their country, but also to have the... Uh, the rights and privileges uh, to uh, to uh, to speak the truth as parliamentarians unto power. That's one of the essential roles of being a parliamentarian. And anybody from whatever party who doesn't understand that should really choose another profession. Alec, it leads up, it leads up when you talk of it. We probably have less numpties in Scotland because we have the people in Scotland who are politically aware move south to Westminster, and I think you not only have numpties, you have privileged numpties. Let me, let me, let me, let me take wait, on... Wait, wait, Mike, you have, uh, you, have, you have people with parliamentary privilege and other privileges. Yeah, look, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of numpties at Westminster. The, uh, <laughs> to that, listen, there's also some great parliamentarians at Westminster. Agreed, uh, in, a, in, in a range In a range of parties. I could name some that I have a great affection for, but let me move on. I want to come to the economy in a second, but can I start with whether or not Scotland is sufficiently prepared for its independence? My feeling is it's not in so many areas. And my hope is that the parliament to come into being, particularly with the approach you're using on it, will start sitting down doing some really serious work Simple example, currently, the day after independence, the civil service are employed by the UK. We may be reliant on GCHQ for cybersecurity. These things worry me, Alec. Could you, could you think your way through what planning we need to do overall? There were changes made, of course, when I was uh, First Minister in terms of the appointment of the Permanent Secretary. I don't want to say any more about uh, uh, Miss Leslie Evans because obviously, as you know, I'm going to be suing the Scottish Government and uh, Leslie Evans' uh, actions, uh, so that would be improper to, to say much more, except that uh, uh, to say organisations are, are often influenced heavily by the leadership of that organisation uh, and there's a great deal needs to be changed 
in the leadership and the performance of the Scottish uh, administration and the civil service at the present moment. Uh, and I put it down to a leadership uh, issue. Uh, there's a great deal needs to be changed in the leadership of the Crown Office at the present moment. Uh, and I put that down to a leadership issue. There are a number of other institutions in Scottish society where, for one reason or another, uh, the leadership has been uh, uh, deficient. Uh, and we've got to examine, because there are plenty of talented folk in Scotland, plenty of talented people, uh, and we have to examine and work out why that has happened uh, and make sure that the leadership of the key institutions of Scotland is up to the task of having the institutional framework that's required uh, for facing to the challenges of being an independent nation. Now, you, you uh, put forward. Now, some of the institutional reforms that I introduced, I, I think if Kenny McCaskill and I had our time over again, uh, we, might, uh, we might ensure the parliamentary and scrutiny safeguards were rather more rigorous than they have been. I think, for example, of the decision to create a unitary police force in Scotland uh, and the decision to create a unitary fire service in Scotland, uh, by and large, on the whole, with great uh, uh, reservations and issues, obviously, but the fire service has been a, a pretty good success. Uh, and in terms of the, the monitoring and the board running the fire service, you know, there, there's been no more problems than you might expect with any organisation bedding in. In terms of the police service, and particularly in terms of the Scottish Police Authority, there's been innumerable difficulties. And I, I think, you know, having a single police force was a, a step, the right step, because it was a, we had a very stark alternative back during the, uh, the days of austerity. We could either slim down the top of the police service or we could slim down the number of police officers. And we decided to slim down the top. That was the idea. But, uh, you know, that wasn't meant just as a once-and-for-all process. You know, the, the single police force was the right thing to do. I'm certain of that. Uh, I think the examination that has to take place to ensure effective scrutiny and effective uh, accountability is an ongoing process. And I've got the impression that we just sort of did it and then left it to, to develop. Uh, I, think, I don't think you can do that. The organisations need to be... Uh, refurbished. Now, the scrutiny that goes on through the, uh, the accounts uh, examination, uh, the, the audits of, that take place, you know, the Scottish Audit Commission and things, uh, it does a good job in many ways, but I'm not certain it's actually getting to grips with the, uh, the examination that's going to be productive in terms of making sure an organisation performs well. Too much of what happens seems to be uh, you know, here's a 20 criticisms, oh dear, let's flash it in the press. And that, that's what you need is much more a, a process of engagement and enhancement of performance. 20 years on, by and large, on the whole, and these things have to be judged on the whole, I, I think devolution has been a success. Uh, and I think the vast majority of people in Scotland regard it as such, and the vast majority of people in Scotland uh, would never conceive of going back to a situation of direct rule from Westminster. Uh, so therefore, that's one up. Have the recent uh, years shown some deficiencies in some of the organisations? Yes, they have. That has to. We have to have a process which renews organisations. 
Uh, and secondly, your point, are we equipped uh, as an independent country? Well, we better get equipped because there's no better way to get the, uh, uh, the correct equipment into place than to set a, a strict uh, a timetable for, for reaching our objective. And when we do, uh, I think we'll find that the, the people and the, uh, and the machinery comes into place to fulfill the need and requirement. Uh, rather like devolution itself, uh, the people rise to the occasion uh, of, uh, of the, the new parliament and the administration of the new parliament. Uh, and as long as we recognise that the more, the more it is our mistakes to rectify and the more responsibility and accountability that comes with it, to go into a process of renewal, the more we recognise that, then the better we'll be. And the better we are at that, then the more acceptance will be from people that we can rise to other challenges, like, for example, cyber security, like, for example, a Scottish Foreign Service, something, incidentally, we would do very well. I remember I enlisted, he better be nameless, I suppose, but he's a peer of the realm and a former, uh, a former permanent secretary at the Foreign Office, uh, who... who I enlisted to give us some advice as we prepared for independence in the high summer of 2014. And he wanted to send an email around the serving foreign office officials <clears throat> saying that, look, we may well be setting up a Scottish foreign office in the very near future. Uh, would you like to volunteer? And I mean, I found myself in the ridiculous position of uh, as a member of the House of Lords, the next permanent secretary of the foreign office, to giving me an idea. And I'm saying, well, maybe that would be a wee bit adventurous at this stage. <laughs> You know, maybe it looks a wee bit presumptuous. And, uh, you know, in, in April of 2014, sending out an email around uh, the staff of the Foreign Office saying, do you want to sign up for a new Scottish Foreign Office? Uh, and so we didn't actually do it. I don't know quite what the response would have been from the UK government. Apoplexy, I think. But nonetheless, you know, looking back, he was absolutely right. Uh, and because he said to me, listen, you'll have no shortage of volunteers, I assure you. <laughs> There'll be many, many people, you know, chargé d'affaires around the world who would be saying, right, okay, it's time to opt for Scotland. Uh, you know, the, the, my experience will be put to better use. So looking back, I, I, I probably, that, that's the sort of initiative we, we should be taking in advance of the, uh, uh, of, the uh, of independence because any organisation is as good as the people who are in it. There's some great people, some great Scots, some great friends of Scotland in these institutions. And perhaps that sort of overture is the one that this time round we'll be making before independence as opposed to waiting till afterwards. Uh, it's just when you were, uh, you were saying about the idea of consulates or, or embassies around the place. What, what's your idea on EFTA or the EU? Well, I mean, ARPA is going to be discussing its European policy a week on Saturday. And I think that my ideas should go to that policy conference and, and we'll no see what comes out. Okay. Take, take some of the threads we've, we've, we've drawn out, Alec. You're saying that week one, we should be in negotiations. Take some of the threads we've talked about with experts, people who are not numpties. Who should be negotiating? Parliament. Uh, I mean, a, a fundamental mistake, a mistake that I made in the run-up to 2014, uh, is I regarded the exercise as a government exercise supported by the civil service. I wanted to get that you know, accepted, and I had, of course, a permanent secretary who was 
uh, very, very effective and able to perform that function uh, uh, in, uh, and did it extremely well. Uh, and therefore that was the right thing to do. But I should have allowed the multifarious grassroots campaign to come into to being in a much more generous form much earlier. It was one of the lessons. But also this time round, I mean, what did we have last time? We had uh, the Scottish National Party and I think we had two Green MSPs whose, you know, and this is no disrespect to, to the people involved, but uh, whose uh, enthusiasm for independence perhaps wasn't as great as, uh, as the SNPs, let's put it that way. Hopefully this time round, there's going to be independence supporting uh, MSPs and at least three political parties and perhaps, who knows, if you have a situation of a supermajority, that, that maybe people in the Labour Party, maybe even in the Liberal Democrats, if there are any left, and uh, maybe even a few Tories, who knows? They, they might decide, to, you know, the game's up with the union, uh, and it'd be better to get their point of view uh, across in an independence context. You know, let, let's say I was Anna Sarwar at the present moment. And I was leading the Labour Party in Scotland. From my perspective, in that position, I'd be saying to myself, you know, I, I think looking at reading the ruins of Scottish politics, Scotland is going to become independent or quasi-independent in the future. There's no future for the Labour Party in being behind the curve in the independence. No, no point in, in being somewhere, you know, in the middle between the, the SNP and the, and the other unionist parties. You know, we should be preparing where we might be in a situation where we have to put forward a, a socialist or a social democratic agenda in the context of an independent parliament. And we should not be outflanked on the constitutional question by the SNP or ALAPA or the Green Party for that matter. I might well be thinking that. So who knows what might happen in a supermajority situation. We might well get people not defecting from their political parties, but people willing to embrace the independence cause. Now, I'm saying the maximum number of people in the parliament and groups in the parliament should be included in that independence negotiation. And the government should take the responsibility of gathering together the forces of the parliament. I suggested yesterday a, a, an independence constitutional convention encompassing all the elected politicians in Scotland, representatives of all the elected base of Scotland to express the sovereignty of the people. It should be a standing body. You could do it from a parliamentary committee as well. Maybe have both. But you're trying to draw in the various forces and parties in Scotland prepared to be part of the independence project so as it's not seen as Tories against SNP, Boris Johnson against Nicola Sturgeon, Prime Minister against First Minister, if it's cast in these terms, we shall lose. If it's cast Boris Johnson, Tory Prime Minister, against the Scottish Parliament representing the sovereign Scottish people, then we've got a chance of winning. So that negotiation should be encompass the strands and groups in the Parliament who are willing to put their shoulders to the wheel. I think we're coming to the end of this and we never got back, we never got on to economics, which I think is very important. I'm, I'm hoping Dave can persuade Isabel to persuade you to come back on and join us. I know you have an awful lot to deal with at the moment, but I hope you'll come back and we can start getting into what the future of the world economy is going to look like and where Scotland plays its part in that. 
Well, can I just answer that by saying one of the things I was able to do as First Minister was set up the Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, and through uh, Joe Stiglitz and Jim Murleys, the late Jim Murleys, and the late Andrew Hughes Hallett, of course, you know, we had three of the outstanding economists in the world, the two Nobel laureates, either Scots by ancestry or Scots by persuasion in the case of uh, Joe Stiglitz. Uh, how we've got into a situation of not being able to use that expertise in the way we should, uh, I have no idea. Uh, but uh, coming back to Scotland and on the Alipa list of candidates is uh, Dr. Jim Walker, another outstanding world economist standing for Alipa in central Scotland in the list with Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh and some other excellent folk. Uh, you know, that is a huge economic talent coming back to Scotland to be part of the political process. Now, if Jim gets elected, well, he'll raise the average IQ of the Scots Parliament. If he doesn't get elected, he'll be, uh, he'll be part of the firmament of uh, of Scots politics, uh, you know, so don't underrate the strength of expertise we have from either Scots or friends of Scotland, not just domestically, but internationally. Uh, there is expertise to mobilize. There are people waiting for a lead. Uh, let's make sure that uh, they're offered the opportunity to contribute to the national cause. For me, thank you, Alex, for joining us. Dave, over to you. I uh, thank you very much, Alec. As you say, we've been looking forward to getting you on for a long time, even before we knew that you were coming back. Uh, it's been a privilege listening to you talking. Thanks very much for coming. Dave, Mike, thank you so much. And of course, I shall return, as somebody once said, <laughs> as soon as possible <laughs> to, to the old heads. And there are only two. <laughs> Thanks very much for tuning in, guys. We'll talk to you later. Cheers, Alec. Right. Cheers then. Bye-bye.